0: Walt Whitman had high aspirations for his poetry. He hoped to bring disparate elements of the country together through the power of his written word. But how truly inclusive is the vision he articulates? I spoke to scholar Christina Beltran and started by asking her how Whitman understood the role of the individual in a democratic society. So
1: there's always this way in which he's trying to think about himself as part and parcel of a larger larger polity, and he's also always thinking about how he has inside himself, the potential to be those other people. Whitman never uses the language of social construction, but he very much articulates that, that you are shaped by your environment. And you hear that in different in different works of his, where, um, like in the poem, This Moment, Yearning and Thoughtful, where he says, you know, I can see them in Germany and Italy and China and Russia, and it seems like, you know, I, would, I should become attached to them as I do men in my own lands. Mm. So he always is sort of pushing past national boundaries at times in his thinking and thinking about how we became who we are and how, um, when you look at somebody who seems dramatic, different than yourself that, in fact, maybe that would have been your story had circumstances been different, had you been born at that time or in that place or under those circumstances.
0: And it's one thing to think about bridging international divides or gaps kind of in the abstract, but, but Whitman is writing a lot of his work, obviously, on the doorstep of the Civil War, right? One of the right. most divided moments in the history of the country, just in the sense of the the violence that is either threatened and, of course, then realized with the war itself. And, you know, m- m- I'm curious to get your sense of whether Whitman believed that his poetry could, in fact, unify the nation if it was on the brink of this conflict.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, there was a real sense in Whitman that he thought that the thing that might possibly save the nation is poetry, right? That perhaps, mm. and that his own kind of adhesive voice, um, could do this important work of reminding people of their shared humanity. There was a way in which he was trying to, to sort of create what what I describe sometimes is a kind of poetics of equivalence, right? Which is that a lot of his poetry you see him making these catalogs and these lists. Mm, mm. I think of like the poem starting from Pominock, where he says the Pennsylvanian, the Virginian, the double Carolinian, you know, and he mm. he and so he's placing <laughs> Virginia, you know, next to Pennsylvania and right, and trying right, to kind of right. create this story of massive juxtaposition, and he does that by naming. Naming spaces of conflict, but placing them next to each other in this sort of poetic relationship, and mm. and um, and I think hoping that maybe in that effort we would we would see something in ourselves differently. If if things are side by side, then perhaps we'll produce a kind of democratic affection for one another through his poetry. he writes about the Civil War, and he has poems like "The Wound Dresser," and some of those poems. You hear him describing, in really you know intense detail the suffering and sacrifice of of soldiers and dead soldiers but what he doesn't do is he doesn't talk about an enemy or a perpetrator right so you read these first, so for example when you read his wartime poems there's almost never a mention of the enemy instead it's always this sort of story of heroism sacrifice the equally brave men who fought and died and so he doesn't deny conflict but he neutralizes
0: it Now, walk us a little bit, you know, through what it must have been for Whitman as a white man in an economy of slavery, in an economy of disenfranchisement. But I'm curious, just given what you've laid out here, how we might understand what Whitman's politics were, specifically on the question of race.
1: He was an anti-extensionist. He opposed the extension of slavery uh, into the Western territories. But he was more concerned about preventing the spread of slavery than really getting rid of it. Right, he denounced the pro-slavery Southern fire eaters, but he also called abolitionists um, uh, red hot fanatics. They mm. were the angry voiced, uh, silly set. He described them, um, oh, yeah. and at the same time, right. So he so he took that kind of um, that kind of stance at the time, and he you know he did not believe that um, African Americans were capable of exercising the vote, right. Mm. So so that's part of his story. At the same time abolitionists and radical Republicans strongly identified with Whitman um, because of his celebrations of brotherhood and equality. Um, And there is something really interesting about the way that he'll talk about the person with the venereal, the venereally, He'll, he'll mention the thief. But there's also this way in which he often includes blackness alongside things that are kind of either degraded or... Oh, or problematic. So, right. so in, when he, in "Song of Myself," he'll say, "He, he." This is like one of the lines. He says, "The kept woman, sponger, thief are hereby invited. The heavy-lipped slave is invited. The venereal is invited." <laughs> um, and so later on, he says, "Voices of the diseased and despairing, of thieves and dwarves." Um, so wow. in "Song of the Open Road," he says. Uh, he sort of welcomes everyone, and he says, "The black with his woolly head, the felon, the diseased, the illiterate wow. person are not wow. denied, right? right? So they're not denied, right. but it's right. interesting to think about where they're incorporated,
0: right? And 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 the way he's he's marking blackness, right? Heavy lips mm-hmm. and woolly hair. I mean, this is it, it's it's for that reason, I guess I I have to say that I, I'm really intrigued by the, the notion that you hear in Whitman um, a kind of a, a prologue to Barack Obama, who comes of political age after, certainly, the great cultural awakenings of black power and the civil rights struggle, um, and even, like, the 1990s. I mean, there's a lot that's happening culturally between Whitman's era and Obama's era, and yet you still hear something familiar.
1: I mean, Obama was always trying to engage our affections for the country by creating a poetic vision of national life. Even his own description of his own personal story was kind of, you know, having this Kenyan father and this white Kansas mother— kind of out of you know e pluribus unum out of many one right mm-hmm. he himself is the embodiment of that story right so he is continually kind of telling his own story that also engages in a certain kind of illusion of difference when he would lay things together in even his 2004 speech about you know we have some gay friends in red states and we worship right. an awesome god in blue states you know he he would mm-hmm. he was there was a kind of poetic way that he allowed us to see ourselves as one Right, But it also involved not saying a lot of things.
0: So you propose that the Chicana poet and scholar Gloria Enzaldua offers an alternative to Whitman's democratic vision, and I suppose by extension, Obama's vision. How do you describe her mestiza poetics?
1: I think one of the things that she produces is uh, another kind of form of democratic connectedness, but that challenges dangerous equivalences because her characterization Mm -hmm. of borders is she characterizes them as borderlands are always home and not home. She doesn't have a dream of of home as a space of origins and belonging. For Ansaldúa, home is always characterized by strangeness. It's always discontinuous and unstable, but it's not simply tragic. It's also generative of all these possibilities.
0: So, Christina, give give me a sense of the language that Enzaldua is using to capture this.
1: She has a poem called To Live in the Borderlands Means You. It begins by her saying, to live in the borderlands means knowing that the India in you, betrayed for 500 years, is no longer speaking to you. That Mm. Mexicanas call you rajetas. That denying the Anglo inside you is as bad as having denied the Indian or black. Cuando vives en la frontera, people walk through you. The wind steals your voice. You're a burra, Bui, scapegoat, forerunner of a new race, half and half, both woman and man, neither, a new gender. And then she goes on to say, to live in the borderlands means to put chili in the borscht, to eat whole wheat tortillas, speak Tex-Mex with a Brooklyn accent, to be stopped by, <laughs> by La Migra at the border checkpoints. For her to be uh, Chicana, to be a Mexican-American, is to be both Indian and Spanish, right? To be both settler and um, and Native, to be both the the figure who's done violence and the figure that's been victimized by violence, and that you have to sort of sit with the fact that you are part and parcel of all of those stories. And I think that—so for me, there was a moment in Obama's political career when he gave that Philadelphia speech on race after right. the Reverend Wright scandal, where to me that was sort of the closest we ever saw Obama get to a kind of mestiza poetics when he mm-hmm. said things like, um, I can no more deny Reverend Wright than I can deny my grandmother who loved me but was afraid of black men on the street. right? right? And and he sort of forced this encounter to say we love people who are racist. Right. Um, and so those were the moments where you thought it's going to be a more grown-up encounter with the complexities of racial justice in this country where there's not just good guys and bad guys. But we're actually dealing with the fact that the good guys are the bad guys. Um, right. And the people who love you are also the people who have done enormous violence to you. And they're part of you.
0: And I get the impression that you're drawing a a point to not just talk about him as a a rhetorician or somebody who can Mm -hmm. kind of create this mass support, but that Obama actually governed in a Whitman-esque way, right? That Mm. he drew certain equivalences and that his political moves as a policymaker and as a a leader, basically, in, in the political scene was also in some ways steeped in this vision of America.
1: Yeah. What struck me was that the strategies that proved productive for getting elected were so different than the strategies one needs for governing. I think we still fetishize this this language of unity. The question I always have is, who's getting erased in this story? Who's, right. Whose interests are getting elided? Whose interests are getting pushed down? Uh, and often it's often the same folks, right? It's it's queer people, it's people of color. It's it's like, you know, it's it's poor people. It's it's usually similar populations. Um, but there is a kind of dream of agreement that we have. And so I think candidates are always called on to emphasize that language. And one of the problems is is that it it is aesthetically and effectively emotionally pleasing to hear the language of unity. But then the reality of governing is a space of contestation and agonism.
0: Well this is I think, you know, one of the the biggest questions that every major political organization is trying to figure out, right, which is what? what's the right tone, what's the right rhetoric. I mean, there, a, there are a lot of ways in which people like to highlight the balkanization of American politics now as needing somebody like Whitman to kind of come in and, and dampen, you know, the the divides. But I mean, just to echo what you've said, I mean, it sounds at least that one of the challenges of having this kind of dampening language, that it doesn't in fact raise the alarms when there are deep inequalities that need to be considered.
1: And and there's one thing I think that is also interesting here is that the adhesive quality of Whitman that is um, the fact that so often he elides conflict, but he does show these connections. I do think that's actually democratically important in some contexts, right? Like I do think that when you live in a city and you get on the subway and you look around you, you see all these different kinds of bodies on display before you. You see Orthodox Jewish families. You see migrant families. You see, you know, young people, old people, queer people, straight people, um, men and women. Um, And in seeing that, um, in seeing all those different kinds of bodies on display, you feel this sense of like, this is us. I mean, I think as a New Yorker, you look around in different kind of urban spaces, D.C. or Chicago. You look at that and you say, this is who we are. And you feel this sense of collectivity that's not unimportant, right, that when you go to your bodega and the guy is Lebanese or, you know, Korean— and that's a kind of daily encounter you have with different kinds of people. That those things do create a kind of sense of democratic solidarity that we are all in this together. But they are fleeting encounters, right? They're not sustained encounters, right? If, if that subway were to break down we might all start hating each other pretty quickly or if, or if that's some way, right? We all had to kind of become a polity together and try to make decisions, right? Then those mm, differences could mm. become problematic that there's like a hedge fund manager in there and a homeless guy. Like, you know, all those people mm, are sharing mm. this public space. And that is, I think, I think Whitman understood that those kinds of experiences of sharing the cities, sharing city life, you know, being on the ferries, being on the bridges – that sharing civic life together is a beautiful and democratic and important element of how we come to feel each other as equally human. It's important, but it's deeply insufficient for the the harder work of governing and the harder work of trying to create democratic community.
0: Christina Beltran is an associate professor in the Department of Social and Cultural Analysis at NYU. She's the author of The Trouble with Unity, Latino politics, and the creation of identity.
2: When did you first become aware of Whitman? What did he mean to you when you did become aware of him?
0: Well, for me, it it was in college, in in the American Studies primer, and, you know, he was— a figure placed very much alongside people like Henry David Thoreau and Mark Twain and Emily Dickinson and obviously Edgar Allan Poe um, as part of this 19th century world of letters that really did give shape to American studies for the 20th century. And so um, there was a way in which, you know, you encounter work like Leaves of Grass as you know almost being um, unimpeachable right. in terms of its impact and it, it being a kind of holy text in some ways Um, And and in particular, you know, I was among a number of students um, in the late 90s who were really thinking hard about questions of diversity and inclusion um, and environmentalism. And, you know, Walt Whitman could be absolutely one of your go-to heroes when you're coming to your education in that register. And there were a, a number of students who were themselves poets who really did gravitate toward and actually helped deepen my own appreciation of Whitman as, you know, an artist who, to their mind, really helped to launch basically, you know, gay poetic art and really recognized him as a gay artist. Again, whether or not that interpretation holds up over time is kind of beside the point, but I think it was really critical for a number of us to, to take a moment and say, you know, there are really important figures of, you know, unnormative sexuality who are part of forming our canon as we know it.
3: What I remember is my emotional reaction to reading Whitman. It, it for the first time, I understood that poetry wasn't a string of lines that were the same length that rhymed. I, I read Whitman, and mm-hmm. it, and it, it touched me in some kind of a way, and I realized that poetry was a lot bigger. Right. <laughs> it was a lot more embracing than I had understood it to be. So it really kind of fundamentally changed the way I thought about what you can do with poetry and and the way you can communicate feelings in prose that way. But there was a second prong to my learning about Whitman, and that actually took place a couple of years later when I was working at the Library of Congress. And this is going to sound goofy, but I was an English major in college, so humor me. Um, We were doing Civil War research, and I stumbled across some of Whitman's Civil War poetry. And I had this sort of strange aha moment, which essentially was, wait a minute, this poet is writing in the middle of a historical moment. And that's historical evidence, you know? And I know it sounds goofy, but some part of my brain was like, oh, heavens, the connection between literature and history, which I just hadn't felt in that concrete way before. Well,
2: you know, I was in New York not long ago and saw, a, a, came in my room, was welcomed by a, si- a framed saying, which I was suspicious of its authenticity. It said, uh, be curious, not judgmental, Walt Whitman. And I thought that sounded (laughs) unpoetic to me. (laughs) It also sounded a little convenient. So I I did some deep research and looked for Walt Whitman sayings online. You can buy very many very attractive Walt Whitman sayings with uh, sunsets and flowers and things. I'm going back to the environmental thing. Uh, But that goes back to Nathan's point is that he's seen as the great poet of not judging other people, of embracing Mm. everybody. But I don't know. That seems a little convenient for us, doesn't it?
0: Well, I think the fact that you found a quote on the wall in a hotel actually t- <laughs> says a lot, right? <laughs> which 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 is that we we furnish our lives with Walt Whitman, right, and and people of of his kind, and I and I do think there is something about you know the present day relationship with Whitman and you know his generation of poets that helps to give and kind of ground a sense of depth to an otherwise, you know, really, in some cases, light, you know, American existence. I mean, just think about American culture, right? If Whitman is, is part of this discussion of this great canon. I mean, he helped in a lot of ways to deepen otherwise, you know, possibly frivolous art forms. And I'm thinking specifically of a movie where Whitman's, you know, line that jumps out to me is, oh, captain, my captain, Right. And, and I and I know that line because of the final Dead Poets scene. Society. Dead Poet Society. <laughs> right, the whole point of that movie was to yes. capture the depth and the power of poetry through this master teacher that Robin Williams is portraying. And and what do they use? Right, they use this Whitman moment as a way to really elevate the drama of the whole affair. Part and otherwise part standing
2: on a desk
0: to read it. Oh, right? Absolutely. Right. Oh, and I love.
3: But all three of us have that moment, right? It's like in a nanosecond.
0: We're Absolutely. Like society. Absolutely. And so, so Whitman's gravity, right, as a figure is evident in those kinds of moments. And, and you can almost add, you know, a Whitman quote to anything. Put it on a, you know, a web page or put it on a hotel wall. And it, all of a t-shirts. sudden, the T-shirts, the depth factor goes up immeasurably. You know, so I think it's worth unpacking that a little bit. Yeah.
3: You know what that makes me think of, though? I, I, because as soon as you started describing Whitman that way, the first person I thought of was Jefferson. Because Whoa, that's his weird. Words I'm sorry. I, <laughs> <laughs> no, but follow no, me. No, Come okay, with okay. Me here. I'm, I'm going to take it home. I, I promise. <laughs> um, in many ways, when I teach Jefferson, I teach him as the poet of the founding. He put into words what Americans want the founding to be, and we hang on to those words. And I'm not even just talking about the Declaration of Independence, but when we read about America through Jefferson, it's what we want America to be. And in some ways, you could say Whitman Mm. is kind of a poet of democracy. It it represents what we want, in some ways, America to be.
0: So this is really helpful, actually, because you know, as as you know, we're talking and thinking, and, and you know, just thinking about the 20th century and and art. You know, my my first impulse was to say, okay, do we have a 20th century poet who can really capture you know the the national sentiment in the way that, say, O. Oh, Whitman could, or to your point, you know, jo- Joanne, which got me thinking along these lines, Jefferson. And the person that came to mind was, in fact, Martin Luther King Jr. Right, as, mm. as somebody who just from the rhetorical um, stands who's words are etched into granite, right? Who are the kinds Mm -hmm. of wordsmiths who get their words etched into granite in national memorials or, you know, on the walls of buildings, right? And there's something about the coming together, the bridging, the universal themes that someone like Walt Whitman helped to consecrate. Um, Obviously, Jefferson, to your point, um, as being the great founder of this kind of language, and and King, you know, has, has so many of these quotes, in some cases ripped out of context, to do exactly that kind of work that it feels in a weird way that Whitman's kind of a halfway point between these two figures Mm. who, in some ways, define these different epochs of of American history.
2: That's really great. And we think about Whitman's kind of uh, twin in his own period is uh, Abraham Lincoln, um, who I think is Mm -hmm. the other person who tries to find what's redeemable in this country even in the face of the unredeemable. you know I mean that's a
3: really distinctive language too.
2: Exactly. And you know we recognize their language enough perhaps to put it on posters and hotel rooms that, that, that sounds like an authentic voice. Lincoln is taking the King James version of the Bible, and so does King and mm. turning it into an American mm-hmm, idiom. Mm. What's interesting nice, about yeah. Whitman and that extent about Jefferson as well, they're speaking in a non-Christian, um, way you know it's it's funny that you might think right. of as sort of the great and and frankly Lincoln as well does not really speak in an explicitly Christian uh, language as well and it's funny when we think about this canon that you were talking about Nathan uh, that we celebrate people who don't embody sort of the, sort of the cultural traditions of the majority population um, it, it's. Mm somehow that they take a distillation of what's best about the United States and give it back to us in a new language.
3: And a, and a language that it's a, I don't want to say limited, but a, a channeled language, right? It includes a very specific vision, right. and there's a lot of stuff happening outside of that vision. but the, But the purity of the language kind of holds you there in the center.
0: Absolutely. You know, Whitman is speaking at a time when obviously a lot of the country is having its citizenship and its democratic rights being taken away at the end of Reconstruction, right? The 1880s are a really tough period in America for a lot of people. Obviously, westward expansion um, is another one of these extraordinary processes that are, you know, growing the country in some ways, but deeply anti-democratic in other ways. And I guess, you know, when, when you we think about the the long history of these great voices, one of the things that is so common through them is that they're oftentimes speaking over or trying to capture these moments of great contestation Mm -hmm. and doing it in a way that has you feeling, in some ways, connected again, right? There's a Mm -hmm. a way that they're trying Mm -hmm. to cross certain fissures or chasms and bring people together when the news cycle may be telling us to do otherwise.
3: Mm -hmm. Just as you're saying, in that sense, by doing that, they're providing a tool that people can use that language to demand their rights, to get Mm -hmm. through those moments, to to Mm -hmm. institute change.
2: Yeah, one thing about these voices is that, uh, you know, Whitman can be, has been criticized for not really having a sense of sin um, or evil in his poetry. And yet, Mm. it's hard to think of anybody who embraced suffering more than he did Hmm. Choosing to go among all those shattered young men in the hospitals of Washington day after day, year after year. Right. Uh, right. He knows about evil. He knows about sin. He knows about loss. And yet, as, as both of you were saying, he speaks a bridging language to get us to the other side of that. You know, he holds up an aspiration that would be America at its best.